Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. I'm Jennifer Andre Grossman. My friends know me as JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society, which is the leading objectivist organization introducing young people to the literature and ideas of Ayn Rand. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Michael Schellenberger. Before I even get into uh, introducing Michael, I want to remind all of you guys, I think we have record numbers on Zoom to please type in your questions, you know what to do. Also, all of you that are watching our live stream on YouTube, just type your questions in. I will get to as many of them as possible. So please keep them short. Um, Michael is author of the best-selling book, Apocalypse Never. He is a lifelong environmentalist, um, an activist. He's been fighting for a cleaner environment for decades, was even named Time Magazine's hero of the environment. But his growing concern about what he saw as a lack of science um, in the public discussion on climate change, as well as a kind of apocalyptic outlook and partisanship in the environmental movement uh, inspired him to write this book. Michael has saved the world's last unprotected redwoods in Humboldt County, California, near and dear to my heart. Uh, he's a supporter of nuclear energy, having done four TED Talks on the topic. He writes on a variety of topics, including homelessness and California's forest fires as someone who lost their house in a uh, California fire and rebuilt. Um, I'm really eager to hear what you have to say on that. Um, Michael has a uh, quite the fan club in the Atlas Society, um, all the way from our chairman of the board, Jay LaPere, who brought this book to our attention, to um, our Atlas Advocates, um, who recently did a book club uh, on Michael's book, and he also graciously joined us for that. So Michael, welcome again, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure. So Michael, what is the biggest potential harm caused, posed by climate alarmism in your opinion, and what do we have to, say, to, to gain, particularly with regards to um, taking concrete and productive positive action on the environment by abandoning um, this discourse of fear. Yeah, I think there's uh, three broad areas where climate alarmism has is causing harm. The first is the impact in terms of our relationship to the developing world. The World Bank used to support development. Now it supports underdevelopment or the persistence or the sustainability of poverty. Um, the second is the impact on young people in particular, but just on the psychological and mental health of people in all sorts of the world. About half of humans around the world, according to a very large survey that was done, think that climate change uh, could make humans go extinct. There's zero science to support that. There's not even very much science fiction to support that. And the science fiction that does exist is not very good, by the way. And then the third is that it just actually undermines the policies that we need to protect the environment, ironically. So if you think of one of the biggest problems in the, I, I think maybe the biggest environmental problem in the world is just you know poor people 
working as small farmers, trying to eke out a living on the forest frontier in places like Brazil or Central Africa, who are basically being denied actively by you know, European Greens and Americans um, and the World Bank, the main uh, drivers of development, which is urbanization, industrialization, um, a chance to seek a better life in the city, uh, more freedoms for everybody, including women and children, but also a solution to the environmental problems that are created by having a lot of frontier agriculture in particular, which both threaten species, but also as we've seen with the coronavirus is probably a main vector for the spread of zoonotic viruses from animals to humans. And so we now know that that kind of poverty, that kind of agriculture is actually a threat to all of us in the form of, um, of new diseases. So you just, cited that astounding statistic that half of the, the global population believes that the, uh, there's a very good chance that the human population is going to become extinct and that there's zero evidence for that. Um, why has this kind of alarmism thrived despite a massive body of evidence uh, to the contrary? And, and how do we push that against this narrative of, of doom and gloom? Well, you're right that the narrative has persisted and in some ways gotten worse over the decades, despite the evidence all going in the opposite direction, basically. I mean, you have to remember that there's prior scares, prior environmental scares have been around um, too many people. Um, in fact, the height of that scare, which was in the late 60s, is also when the rate of population growth peaked and um, started to decline. Uh, we now know that the human population will almost certainly peak at 9 to 11 billion, and that um, for it to peak at the lower number, which most of us that care about the natural environment would like to see, that would mean more wealth and prosperity and industrialization for places like Central Africa, not less. And so um, um, unfortunately, um, despite the, you know, so many of these trends, I mean, there's, uh, let me just name a few, carbon emissions peaked in, the, in Britain, France, and Germany in the mid seventies, they peaked in the United States 13 years ago. Uh, we're in a transition from coal to natural gas. Everybody agrees natural gas is better than coal. Just have to use, just cook in your kitchen and you know that you would rather be cooking with gas than with coal. So it's a very benevolent transition. Um, and, um, but unfortunately, yeah, the, the, the alarmism has just gotten worse and worse. And I've had people sort of say to me, why if you're an environmental activist, a climate activist, do you why are you pushing back on the alarmism? Doesn't the alarmism help? I, I compare it to being like a doctor that works on cancer, for example. So if you work on mm -hmm. cancer, um, we're getting much better at treating cancers. Like it's this huge success story. Like we're turning a lot of cancers into chronic diseases like we've now done with HIV AIDS. It's this major thing we should be celebrating and seeking to provide for everybody in the world. And so if somebody was coming along saying that, you know, billions of people are gonna die from cancer, which in, a, in one sense is actually true over several decades, but, but for somebody to come along and say the world's gonna end because of cancer, you'd kind of be like, that's actually communicating the wrong information, things are getting better. So in the book, just in short, I, the last three chapters of the book describe what I see as the underlying causes of the alarmism, money, power, and religion, ultimately concluding that um, climate alarmism and environmental alarmism more, more broadly which stems from the intellectual class and of scientists and, and media and elites is really an alternative religion. It's really the new dominant secular religion 
you might kind of group it with you know Black Lives Matter or other kind of um, left wing movements as really an alternative religion to the decline of Judeo Christianity. And so I conclude that actually, as much as we push back against it, and we should on the facts, as we've done in Apocalypse Never, that we can expect the this kind of alarmism to increase because people are are engaging in it really to provide their own lives with meaning and to gain some kind of status and power through conspicuous compassion and virtue signaling. Well, that's really interesting because uh, some of our viewers uh, might be asking really, well, what does objectivism have to do with what we're talking about right now? But of course, the sort of central tenet of objectivism is A is A, that reality exists. Uh, and it's, of course, it's a philosophy of self-esteem, of productivity, of finding a purpose uh, in your life and finding that purpose and living that purpose. And I, I think that regardless of, of where you ultimately end up in terms of your, your politics or your purpose, but when you have this existential vacuum and you just abandon uh, trying to find your own personal purpose, you, you open up um, a, uh, a need to find an alternative one. So um, I wanna also encourage everybody, please ask your, your questions of Michael. This is a really unique opportunity. So just go ahead and, and type them in. But first I've got a few of my own. So I thought this was interesting, Michael, that you, uh, in terms of politics, identify as, as more politically left-leaning in your, in your writings, not big surprise. Uh, you're in Berkeley, I think. <laughs> I uh, certainly started out much more on the, the left side of the political spectrum uh, myself and much to my parents' chagrin <laughs> have um, had my own evolution. But you are undeniably um, gaining a lot of popularity among conservatives, libertarians, and clearly um, in the objectivist community. Why do you think that might be? I mean, I think the underlying reason is that we share the same values. Um, I mean, I'm in favor of prosperity. I'm in favor of wealth. I'm in favor of individuality. Uh, I think what I share with objectivists um, and libertarians, if I could define it broader, I know you're not the same, um, is yeah, for sure a commitment to kind of uh, reality and um, facts and science, um, but also committed to kind of every human is special and every human has this internal potential and and we're not victims and we're not helpless victims of our natural environments that we can take control over our lives. You know, much of the environmental discourse paints humans on the one hand as these kind of terrible, greedy predators and destroyers of nature. On the other hand, it depicts us as kind of helpless victims of, you know, I mean, one of the most ridiculous is sea level rise. I mean, you know, sea level, you know, climate, you know, my view, climate change is real. Um, we should do something about it. We are, it's not the end of the world. It's not the biggest environmental problem. Sea level rise, the median estimate sea level rise is a half a meter, 0.6 meters. That's about two feet over the next, you know, century. I mean, we think people can't deal with one centimeter sea level rise a year. I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we farm seven meters below sea level in Netherlands. Uh, if anybody has been to Venice in Italy knows that this is an entire city kind of constructed on the water. You know, we, we put a person on the moon. Um, we do things technologically that are unbelievable. So this idea that sort of we're these passive helpless victims, I reject that at a kind of 
primordial way, I think in the same way that probably many objectivists do, which is to say that that's just gross. It treats humans as machines or a simple stimulus response uh, kind of behavioral view or a kind of a view that basically is dehumanizing. So I think we share that in common. I also support uh, market signals. I think prices contain a huge amount of information and that Hayek is basically right about that and that there's no substitute for it. And I point to the case of the whales where you know countries that had more centralized control over supply of oils by the 20th century, they were using whales for uh, vegetable oils for soap and margarine. Um, the Soviets, some of the worst whaling was done because the Soviets were, were avoiding market uh, signals that were coming from making, from vegetable oils becoming a lot cheaper and whales becoming a lot more expensive. So definitely share some stuff on that. Um, yeah, people are always curious. I am a Democrat. I, I remain a Democrat. I'm unhappy with the Democrats. I live in California, so therefore I'm unhappy with the Democrats. It's a single party state. Um, you know, my view is that there's some services that are probably better, that are natural monopolies that are probably better provided by the state. And we can talk about that or disagree about that. But I just think there's some things that are like that, including electricity. You know, we're, we're in the middle of a psychiatric crisis here. And I just don't, if there's some other, if there's some way to solve that psychiatric crisis with market forces, I get to see it. So I think there's certainly some things that should be in the domain of, of collective action. But yeah, I, I admit that I'm... Um, um, a bit of an outlier when it comes to Democrats in California, certainly in Berkeley as well. Oh, that's for sure. Um, and I spent most of the past year in San Francisco with my parents and uh, mm. wrote an article called uh, Vagrants in Our Driveway, a Teachable Moment. Um, mm. And it, I took a, a video because I heard my mother upstairs, my mother who's a Democrat and a social worker, um, mm. And she, we were at home and she was concerned, you know, that there was someone who was completely out of it, um, stumbling around half naked in, in the driveway. And I was um, saying that I, I thought that it was usually not a lot of upside when that happens. Uh, it wasn't probably a very good day for, for that individual either. But I was um, saying, at least from an objectivist moment, perspective that it was possibly a teachable moment because of the language we used. Um, when I'm in Ayn Rand's literature, particularly like an anthem where the word I has been abolished, when you are so focused on when well, we use this word and we don't use that word, you not only limit debate, but you limit even your ability to uh, think about it. And so I, I said, we used to have a very rich, broad vocabulary of the way that we would talk about people who were living on the streets. And uh, it, it, some of them weren't very polite, uh, you know, vagrants or bums or panhandlers or beggars or whatever it might be, um, roustabouts. I mean, the list goes on and on. And now it's just homelessness. And that at least to me makes it think that it's about housing, you know, as opposed to what you're talking about. Would you tell us a little bit about the, the writing that you're doing on that and, um, and maybe some of your thoughts? Sure, I'm really happy to. So I'm happy to say too, I, I, have a, I just signed a book deal with my publisher, HarperCollins. My next book is gonna be about the so-called homeless crisis in San Francisco. I agree with you, the word homelessness is a propaganda word. It's a word that is designed to make us think that the problem is essentially poverty rather than being a problem of untreated mental illness and addiction, which any of us who live here know that it is. 
Right. There are extremely poor people. Um, I think that there are policies that we should have to help them. There are also people that are addicted to meth and sleeping on the street. Those are not the same people. I mean, sometimes they might be, but this idea that we have one word that, that combines all these different people, it's, it means it's a propaganda word. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I'll make two observations. I mean, the first is that the person in your driveway, you're supposed to, if you're gonna be able to have friends and <laughs> polite conversation in San Francisco, you're supposed to call that person unhoused and suffering from a substance abuse disorder. That's the correct language. What you'll notice about all the language is it's all aimed at, 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 at eliminating any sense of responsibility or agency or power from what they do. So the very idea that people are victims as opposed to people that have undergone hardship and, and, and in fact have a lot of heroic potential because victimization of course is a stage in becoming a hero. Victimization is part of what it takes to become a full human being that has suffered and suffers and has overcome that that's, I'm more in the tradition of Friedrich Nietzsche which says that, you know, that which, you know, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger He's not saying that he's not saying that's how it is for everybody. He's saying that that's what you should tell yourself. That's the attitude you should have when faced with hardship. Well, the left here, mostly the radical left, but the left here says, no, 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 you could not possibly demand anything from anybody. We can only, it's really social worker mentality gone crazy, not to criticize your mom at all. And my family, by the way, has social workers in it and, and teachers, and they're all very empathic, but we've clearly, it's not, it's not, um, it's not rocket science to figure out what's going on around here. I mean, you just go give people all sorts of money and benefits and then you and you let them shoot drugs in public and defecate in public and sleep on the sidewalk. That's what people will do. And I think it's interesting. There's a writer um, who I've become really interested in. He's a psychiatrist, he's from Britain. And he describes the language that people really the kind of the most challenged folks in our society use to describe their circumstances. And he talks about one guy who talks about how he, how he stabbed a guy and he was describing it and he said, the knife went in, you know, it was a completely, it like completely erased his agency and his responsibility from it. And if you think that responsibility is essential to being an adult and to transcending a kind of um, familial or paternalistic relationship, then what you want is to have policies that reward responsibility, that require responsibility, where there's some amount of reciprocity. And we have all sorts of words that we use to describe this relationship. We call it carrots and sticks. We call it rights and responsibilities. We call it tough love. In San Francisco, we basically, in San Francisco Bay Area, we basically eliminated one half of that equation, um, which is madness. And we see it, but you know, we see it in the whole culture, you know, we're all going soft and I mean, we all know what this problem is. Um, and it's a challenge. I think you guys probably think a lot about certainly Anne Rand thought about it, um, which is what do you do when you become really rich and soft um, and, and coddling and you don't create any of these strictures. I mean, what we know, I'm a father, um, I'm not going to claim to be the best father in the world. And, and um, like a lot of parents have a lot of regrets, but I do know that my experience with kids is that they want to, they want to have things demanded of them. People need responsibilities to give their lives meaning and purpose. And so what is a political movement doing that is depriving people a chance to feel powerful, to feel responsibility, to take control of their life? I mean, one of the worst things you can say about somebody in the Bay Area right now is you say, oh, well, that's somebody that thinks that you could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like that would be the worst thing in the world to think that you would actually 
you know, when people now, of course, you know, look, I am still, like I said, I still think there's some role for the government here. I think there's a role to help people when they're down and out, but it should be tied to some sense of responsibility. So that's, you know, that's where the book is headed and you just see it everywhere. I mean, it's just like, they're literally, <laughs> I love being asked this because you can see my poor wife and friends are just sick of me ranting about this. They're literally harm reduction has gone from giving people clean needles so they, they don't transfer HIV or hep C to each other to providing people with meth pipes and with foil to light fentanyl on and smoke it. Like what's the public interest in that? Like how is that harm reduction at all? It's just enabling terrible behavior. Um, so, you know, the punchline to it all is that it's pretty simple. You have to restore some sense of some, some requirement of responsibility. You have to have more strictness in how we raise our kids, including particularly how we raise our boys because they need it more than girls need it, but everybody needs it. And that, you know, the good news is that mothers can father just as fathers can mother. And that turns out that the, both sexes can play these roles, but that kids need that and they need to have things expected of them. And and we all need that. And I think that we're in a moment in American life right now where nobody knows what's expected of each other. And that's why every institution in the society is failing from the White House to Congress, to the New York Times, to you know the United Nations, to CDC and World Health. Every institution is in crisis in Western civilization. And I think the reason for that is because there's no vision. There's no sense of what do we owe each other as taxpayers and citizens. There's no sense of you know, um, if I get something, what do I owe for it? Um, and I think that ultimately Californians will and Americans will come back to this balanced place of rights and, and obligations, rights and responsibilities that um, sure, you know, there is some obligation I think on the society to provide some basic shelter, particularly to people that are pretty low capacity and incapable in some ways of taking care of themselves. We have some obligation to them, but everybody can work. Everybody can do their part. Everybody can contribute. You know, I was in the Netherlands, which is one of the most liberal countries in the world, and people with pretty high levels of severe mental illness also do work. They are constantly doing work for themselves. And I think it makes social work a little bit harder. It, sometimes it's easier just to provide the service than to demand things from people. But ultimately, the whole society needs to be demanding both individual and some sense of social responsibility for ourselves if we're going to solve this untreated you know, addiction and mental illness crisis and, and frankly, just prosper, develop and continue to you know, protect and, and strengthen our institutions rather than allow them to be completely you know, denigrated and, and dismantled. Yeah, that, that, there's so much there that resonates when you also talk about people uh, with mental illness or other kinds of disabilities um, that can work. You know, and one of the reasons that I patronize the particular grocery stores that I do is because I see that grocery store going out of its way to provide some kinds of work opportunities for the people that, you know, the, mm -hmm. it's, sometimes it can be a little strange, right? That the guy that's, you know, that bagging groceries yeah. clearly, uh, you know, is autistic or something like that. Um, I also did it, you know, at, at the Atlas Society Gala. I, uh, had my dress that was made by a Guatemalan, 23-year-old Guatemalan um, fashion designer who also happens to have Down syndrome, right? So we can, we can each of us make these kind of choices as individuals, as organizations, as businesses to, yeah. uh, to, live, to live our values.
So we're going to get to, um, to some of these questions, um, but I, I didn't want to uh, let you go without also asking a little bit about your origin story, Michael. Like what, how did you become um, so interested in, in the environment and what was, what was your path? Were there people that were influences? Were there books that were influences? What was it? Sure. Um, yeah, boy, a lot to talk about. Um, yeah, I've actually started to understand a little bit more about my family. So I am um, from a long line of Mennonites, which is a uh, Christian Protestant sect that is, um, including in my family, was pretty anti-statist, uh, held a lot of ideas that I think Atlas Society members would share, ironically, um, though others not. Um, it's a very they're not the Amish, um, but the Amish um, are close. And, and often, you know, my, the Amish, when you stop being Amish, you just become Mennonite. And so, for example, my grandfather's parents um, were Amish and then they, they became Mennonites. And so in that tradition, it, there's a lot of radical thought, a lot of outsider thought. Um, we were suspicious of the state, suspicious of the nation, very pacifist. My whole family was like that. Um, I was, I was not, I, I was a pacifist and then I became more of a radical, more of a radical leftist, uh, certainly had a socialist phase, certainly had a Marxist phase. Um, I spent a lot of time in Latin America. I was never Malthusian. I never thought there was too many humans. I never thought there was too many people that always struck me as racist, even from a very young age. Always loved the natural environment, never thought that there should be a conflict between people and the natural environment. And so it was always, there was always something strange about some environmentalists to me. I mean, the other part of it was I was always struck by how wealthy they were and how aristocratic so many environmental folks were compared to other left-wing movements. Um, and then, you know, what can I say? Uh, mugged by reality, you know, I lived in peasant communities in Latin America. Um, people want prosperity. Prosperity is good. Uh, progress is mostly good. You know, we all suffer the some of the consequences of progress, but all else being equal, we'd rather have it than not have it. Um, and um, yeah, now what else? I guess the stuff on the, you know, really the stuff on markets was some of the most recent um, in the sense of, I never really was against that stuff, but it always, I came to appreciate more. You get older and you just kind of understand how the world works better and you kind of go markets are important. So it was a gradual process. Um, you know, I actually did some work in Venezuela. This is the final stage of my socialism was um, being in Venezuela and it just got crazy. Like the Marxists were just nuts. And it was just, I just remember being like, this is not, there's something really kind of wrong about this at, at multiple levels. And I just remember that being the kind of goodbye to all that. <laughs> so that broke the camel's back. Well, it's interesting yeah. what you're saying about uh, Venezuela, and we'll have to make sure that you see our latest from my life, My Name is Venezuela, which we've also translated oh. into Spanish. And after the United States, which is, um, has, that's our biggest audience, the second biggest audience, the most engaged audience for the United States in the entire globe at the moment is Venezuela. So it's, uh, it's, it, it is interesting that there are still enough people physically there when so many have left. And I identify with your journey kind of in, in, in the reverse because I was uh, raised in a very liberal, um, more belief in state intervention background. And then I also made my, uh, you know, 
you went through your Marxist phase, your socialist phase. I went through, you know, my Republican phase, my libertarian phase, <laughs> right, objectivism. Uh, and we have here a question from the man that made this possible. He is Jay LaPere, uh, chairman of the board of the Atlas Society. And uh, he wants to know, Michael, has your book made converts among environmentalists? And what are the legitimate criticism your book received, uh, if any? Well, unfortunately, you know, this environment is so polarized my book did not really get a fair hearing on the left. Um, I've written for the New York Times and Washington Post before. I've reviewed books for the Washington Post and neither of them um, uh, reviewed the book. Um, one of those newspapers, I won't say which, so I don't get anybody in trouble. The review editor sent back a note sort of saying that he thought it was too bad that the newspaper decided to shut me out. Um, it's not, a, it, as you know from reading it, this is not some right-wing book. It's not even really a libertarian no. book. Um, there's just nothing kind of, it's not really very, ideological at all, but um, it got iced out of the left. So there's just a lot of people never heard of it. I mean, it's just, it's sad, um, but um, that's just, you know, I can't do anything about that. So, um, so unfortunately not enough. I did get some very nice notes. Some of the most rewarding notes I get are from people who were depressed about environmental problems. Like, especially from adolescents, young people emailed for sure and were like, thank you. And I felt better. I know the world's not going to end and um, you kind of broke it all down. And those were extremely rewarding to get. Um, I think it has had an impact as well on the discourse, not as it's not as obvious to some people, but if you pay super close attention to the conversation about these things, I can see it's just slightly less acceptable to be hysterical about climate change, particularly in elite media audiences, like on Twitter. Still a bunch of it around the forest fires. We saw it you know, where, which was just ridiculous. But um, I do think in some other areas it's gotten better. Um, you know, legitimate criticisms of the book. Um, I'll say there's criticisms I've felt the need to respond to and criticisms I haven't felt the need to respond to. And the ones I felt the need to respond to, I put them on the website and I responded to them. I mean, the most substantive criticism of the book came from somebody who defended Reverend Thomas Malthus, who's the villain in Apocalypse Never. So it's funny because you're kind of like, on the one hand, environmentalists, they said, oh, Michael, you're constructing a straw man. Nobody really follows the ideas of Thomas Malthus anymore. And then the main attack on me, like they had a huge photo of Thomas Malthus's face, a painting of Malthus as a, a, an attack on Apocalypse Never. Um, you know, substantively, you know, ticky tacky stuff. I've, I have issued a small number of corrections that mostly were typos on the website, but nothing of significance. Um, you know, I will say, you know, um, and, you know, it's hard to ask an author <laughs> what criticisms <laughs> are, are valid, but I will say, you know, um, I wasn't trying to, there were some people that were like, it's not super, my book's not super original. And, and I, I think there's part of it that's true, which is that I wasn't trying to break new theoretical ground or new journalistic ground even. Um, what I was really, I think where, where the novelty in the book exists is that I synthesized it. And um, you know, I was praised recently for being good at synthesizing and, and it's actually something I, I take a lot of pride in at being able to um, you know, kind of explain some complicated ideas in a small amount of space. So, for me, the book is um, what's special about it. And what I what I am proud of with the book is that it it covers a lot. You know, it covers both the debunking of these 
of the alarmism, but also tries to get at some of the deeper psychological and I think even spiritual um, um, motivations that underlie so much of the alarmism. Speaking of motivations, uh, we have another question here from another one of our donors, Phil Coates. Hey, Phil, great to see you and appreciated those kind uh, comments that you had about the Atlas Society on uh, Carl Barney's blog. So uh, Phil wants to know, why has the apocalyptic version of climate change taken over among scientists? And I guess first, you know, whether or not you'd agree with that premise, Phil wants to know, are they confused, politically intimidated from speaking out? Or three, are there quite a few out there who uh, do like you, but just really aren't getting picked up by the media? Yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. <laughs> to all, all, all of those, yeah. Yeah, I, um, one of the characters in the book is is one of my favorite people in the whole world, um, a gentleman named Roger Pelkey Jr., who's a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder and was is one of the most just balanced um, scientists in terms of, he's famous because he shows that there hasn't been an increasing cost from natural disasters once you account for economic growth or more more property in harm's way. Once you account for that, hurricanes don't cause more damage today than they did in the past. Um, and he's taken a lot of, he suffered significantly for that. Not a victim. <laughs> he's actually the hero of the book, one of the heroes of the book. Um, but he said, you know, he was like, you know, look, a lot of this is just people, you know, the majority of people are just herd animals. Um, see, I'm trying to work in all of the Ayn Rand concepts I can. Um, <laughs> um, you know, that most people are just kind of follow the herd and they're obedient and they just, you know, people, most people, I mean, and I understand it, they just don't want to be criticized publicly. They don't want to be attacked on Twitter. And of course they don't, nobody likes that. And so I just think a lot of people are just intimidated into silence. I think most scientists are not radical left um, and alarmist. So there's definitely a handful that are, they're true believers, every single one of them. Um, yeah, I mean, there's financial motivations always, but the main event is I just think they're true believers. And I think it makes sense that for me, I at the end of the book, I talk about how I think that, the, of course, the narrative that sci alarmist scientists say and they wanna say is, well, I'm just more in touch with the facts and that's why I'm so alarmist. But I think that um, that's not true. And, and I think a, a deeper motivation is that, remember scientists were the first ones to, to struggle with um, purpose once you accept, if you believe there's no God. And so scientists were the ones out there making the world godless, so to speak, kind of being like, look, we can explain a lot of evolution without God. You know, we can explain a lot of things in the world without, without uh, the Bible. And I think that undermined um, a very powerful basis for human civilization, which is the idea that our morality, that we should behave properly, because if we don't, then we will suffer for it in the afterlife or be rewarded for it. So once that's gone, I think people then search for some other ways to make meaning and they, they decide to make meaning um, through um, really trying to enforce um, power in this new morality. And so there's been this effort in particular by alarmist scientists to do that by activist scientists. But like I said, they're in the minority and, and most people are just intimidated. Thomas Odea has a question. He wants to know, how do you answer the question of human impact on global warming? I believe we are impacting it, but not as much as is being stated. Nature is a much bigger impact, correct? Is, is, that, is that your view? 
Well, it depends. So it sounds like he wants to talk about climate change. So um, my view of climate change is pretty close to the mainstream view, which is that carbon dioxide is a heat trapping molecule. It makes sense that a lot of carbon dioxide would be contributing to warming. The mechanism is well understood scientifically and it has been since the late 19th century. Plus we have, we have good observations of temperature changes. There has been some problems with land-based temperature records but we have good temperature records for the oceans. So we know the world is getting warmer and we see the impact of, of climate change. Um, we do. And um, um, is there, is, is nature playing a role? Well, of course. I mean, it's like saying, you know, I mean, it's, it's a funny word nature because it just refers to everything. So it's like, are there natural, so Bill might want to say, is there natural cycles? Could be, although, you know, um, we may have been headed, heading towards a cooling period. In fact, a lot of scientists thought we were headed towards a cooling period. And then we're surprised when we, uh, that all of the, that we got warmer. And so that is part of where the theory comes from. But I, I think the evidence is pretty strong. And, um, and, and with the book, you'll see that I sort of defend uh, that more uh, mainstream view of the effect of, of, of carbon and other heat trapping gases on climate change. But I just push back on the idea that that we're just victims of it all and that we can't have any control over it. In fact, I show that, you know, that greater adversity, that fighting adversity, including in terms of where you live, whether it's Venice, Italy or, or Amsterdam can bring great achievements, you know? I mean, arguably the greatest achievements, um, the only great achievements are achieved through some sort of struggle and, and challenge and adversity. And so, so what I'm really pushing back against is the idea that this is some apocalyptic threat that we're incapable of dealing with. And I'm also pushing back against the fact that there are other things that we do to the natural environment that are pretty terrible that we don't need to do and that we could stop doing, like eating less wild fish, you know, like not using biofuels at all, you know, like not spreading garbage energy sources like, you know, solar panels, you know, made in China over vast landscapes or killing birds with wind turbines that they don't need to do those things. And so in, in the name of climate change, we're causing significant amounts of harms. So, um, but I think that the conservatives, and in some ways I wrote the book for my conservative friends, or I wrote the book for my friends on the right, which is to say, um, don't just be anti, you know, the Malthusians, though that's important, mm -hmm. but we should have a positive program. And that's a positive program that's built around you know, human aspiration, human development, um, innovation, energy transitions, intensified agriculture, and the move towards more um, energy dense fuels. I think that that's a wonderful uh, way to put it. And uh, our most recent honoree at the Atlas Society Gala in October was Peter Diamandis. And uh, he is an environmentalist as well, but he has a perspective on technology exponentially accelerating innovation and uh, an optimistic perspective on the ability to overcome challenges. And I think that's part of what, what I'm hearing from you because um, if, if ever we are heading into a, a vortex where we're able to um, source solutions for some of these global crises, it's now. But of course, if we enact socialism and we uh, get rid of these sources of capital, which can fund these efforts, then, then we're gonna be in trouble. Uh, question from Joe L. Dredd. He wants to know, um, have you written about Greta Thunberg? I don't know if I'm pronouncing your name right. What's your opinion of her and the things that she says? 
Yeah, she's a character in the book. I write extensively about Greta. She's very interesting, very important uh, figure. Um, I treat her as an adult, which means that I make criticisms of her substantively. I reject this idea that somehow she can denounce all of Western civilization and that anybody who responds to her is somehow picking on a girl, which has been the nature of, of, of her advocacy and her defense, which I find pretty terrible, honestly. Um, so I treat her as the adult that she is. And I point out that what she's recommending is panic in her own words. <laughs> she says, I don't want you to have hope. I want you to panic. Well, I don't wish panic on my worst enemies. And, and the reason I don't do that is because what panic means is unthinking behavior and, and action. Like, right. why, would you, why would you wish unthinking behavior, particularly on your opponents? Um, I don't think we want anybody engaging in unthinking behavior and action. And you might say, well, that's just rhetorical, Michael. Why are you making such a big deal of it? But I point out that in fact, um, uh, two radical environmentalists with Extinction Rebellion um, were dragged down from the top of uh, tube cars. Uh, that's the subway in London, of course, uh, from the tops of tube cars in a protest and they were kicked and beaten. Could have been killed. I mean, genuinely, they could have been killed. Um, and there was, there have, and there's been, you know, a lot of harm, you know, caused by that sort of rhetoric. And so I think it's irresponsible. And I also point out that at the end, you know, at the beginning of last year, she started by talking about how poor countries, we should, you know, poor countries need to use a lot of energy they need to develop. She at least recognized that. By the end of the year, she was denouncing economic growth at the United Nations. And I point out, you know, Greta Thunberg, upper middle class, child of an opera singer and an actor and stay at home dad who are clearly very affluent, live in very affluent circumstances. There is no Greta Thunberg without economic growth. Like she is a product of economic growth and it's that lack of gratitude and awareness. She came to the United States, this is after I finished the book and I've never written about it because it's just annoying, but she did this podcast of her trip around the United States and it was the most patronizing, insulting, um, you know, talking, she would like, I mean, she was like criticizing Americans for having like cattle ranching. I mean, it's like, what do you think in Sweden? They don't eat meat. I mean, it was the most kind of typical, stereotypical European put down of Americans I'd ever heard. And I'm not some like, you know, whatever, you know, red state, you know, or bust guy. I live in Berkeley for Pete's sake, but the kind of disrespect that she levels at, at people that, that share her class, mm -hmm. actually at people that are slightly below her class by at working class people is offensive. You know, it's the same way that, I mean, the way the, way the European, it's a kind of European snobbery. So I think she's, and I think that ultimately, and I sort of conclude this at the very end of the book, is that a lot of what you're, a lot of this climate alarmism and an effort to try to control how countries produce energy and food has to be read as a rearguard action to protect globalization and elite privilege at a time when nations are reverting towards nationalism and working classes are asking what's in it for them. And at a time when people are asking, what does it mean to be an American? And to assert the dominance of Greta Thunberg and United Nations officials over, you know, domestically elected governments is just terrible, and nobody wants that. You know what you were saying about panic. Um, I thought was interesting that you certainly wouldn't want anybody, but particularly somebody who actively wished you harm, 
to revert to a mode of unthinking behavior. Uh, and it also struck a tone with what you were saying about the ingratitude that you observed and that you're picking up in Greta's message and something that our chairman has talked a lot about uh, is, is gratitude. We have a, my name is gratitude video and it's like, well, what your objectivist, how does that fit in? Uh, because just as panic is not gonna help you or anybody function in a productive goal-oriented manner, um, being constantly thinking about what you need, what other people have, presenting other people is a very disempowering agency reducing uh, way to move in, in the world. So as we, as we move towards Thanksgiving, we definitely recommend uh, a dose of gratitude every, every day, every day, 365 days a year. John uh, lacks me, and we are getting to the end here, so um, maybe we can get to one or two short questions. Uh, since Michael should be congratulated for the course correction he made, it would be useful to present the arguments and facts uh, in the book in a visual documentary format. Any, any effort underway to do that? Well, on the one hand, we did in the sense that if you go to environmentalprogress.org and you go to the drop down page for Apocalypse Never, you can see all the graphs and charts of all the scientific or the stuff that's easy to quantify. We did do some qualitative stuff on those slides. But I mean, my colleague, by the way, Madison Serwinski, who did it, who is an amazing researcher, there's something like 200 slides of all the charts and graphs. And they are easy to download and also easy to just kind of right click and paste into social media so people can share them. And then yes, should, should each chapter of Apocalypse Never be its own episode on a Netflix documentary series? Absolutely. <laughs> um, I would love that. Um, I, I wrote, the, the story of the book is that I was contacted by a talent agent who after she saw my TED Talks wanted to see if I wanted to do a TV show about nuclear. And I said, yeah, yeah I'm working on a book about that. And then she's like, we'll do the book first, then we'll talk about the TV show. And then I did this book and it changed in the middle and it became this, this new book. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, I was talked, I have talked to folks that want to make it into a TV show, but so far um, it hasn't panned out. And, and it's disappointing because I think it would make for better television than a lot of stuff that's on Netflix right now. <laughs> um, and um, I think it would be great. And also my, my daughter, you know, she's um, 15. She's not quite into the book yet. And I really wanted her to have something for gen, you know, for Zoomers and young millennials and others and people who just don't read, you know, people don't read that much. So yes, if anybody's listening, I would like a TV show on Netflix, um, <laughs> but apparently what the universe wants is for me to write a book about the homeless crisis in San Francisco. And so I've kind of made my peace with that. Um, that's what and, I'm working on. Yeah, and, and the universe wants you to write a book on uh, on fires too. I, I certainly would. I can be. I can. I can do. I can do a whole chapter on on that in terms of uh, what, from my own personal experience, I've seen that mm -hmm. um, contributed to to uh, the very precarious situation in which we find ourselves. So um, we have a few other questions. Uh, people are asking your thoughts on some others uh, like Matt Ridley. Um, I think we also have a question about if you have any thoughts on uh, the animated film director Hayao Miyazaki. I'm not, I'm not sure who that oh, is. Oh, I love Hayao Miyazaki. 
<laughs> so um, yeah. yeah um, well, those are two very interesting characters. Um, so Matt Ridley and I are friendly. Um, I've met him in person. Um, I like him. Um, I, we don't see eye to eye on everything. You know, um, I did a history of the fracking revolution in the United States. I did find more U.S. government involvement than he acknowledges in his history, but you know, it's at that level of disagreement. It's not. Um, we're, we're good friends, and I think his books. He's written some very fine books. Hayao Miyazaki is a very interesting character. He, of course, is the Japanese filmmaker who made his most famous movie, *A Spirited Away*, and um, but he's made other movies that are absolutely some of my favorite movies in the entire world. Not just animated films. I mean, I think he's a genius. Um, I love all of his movies, um, and his movies are deeply nostalgic. They tend to be. They're actually nostalgic in an interesting way. They tend to be. They're steampunk. They tend to be nostalgic for kind of early industrial revolution. They tend to be very nature nostalgic. Um, he's de definitely uh, hardcore. I think he's a Malthusian, um, low energy, um, you know, romantic re reactionary. You know, that's who he is. And. I see it in a lot of artists. I forgive it more because I think, you know, artists have a kind of, um, they're romantics, right? And so they have a view that things were always better in some past period. And when we were either hunter gatherers or farmers or the early industrial period for Hayao Miyazaki. And um, I don't think it's very healthy for politics but it seems like it's just a really deep part of art. And so for me, you know, I don't write about how Miyazaki in the book because he's not, you know, depriving poor countries of energy. <laughs> you know, he's not, a, he's not a villain or anything, but, but it's interesting that one of your, one of the folks asked about it. I think one of the most interesting about how I'll say also about Miyazaki's films, he made a movie called Nausicaa, I believe, where the world is polluted and contaminated but then when they get beneath it, they discover that that earth is um, healing itself that actually it's clean, that earth is clean itself. And I think that's important for people to remind themselves of is that, you know, one of the things we found in the plastics chapter, well, the first thing, the most important thing is that we shouldn't, you should not recycle your plastics because the chances are that they'll end up being shipped to poor countries that don't have waste repositories and end up in the ocean. But the other thing is that the ocean actually does degrade a lot of plastics and we should just be appreciative of our natural environment for breaking things down. And that it's not the case that, that you know, our pollution is everlasting or something that um, it's not an excuse to pollute, but, but it is to say that nature is much more resilient than we give her credit for being. Well, I am I'm going to see if I can get my parents to read your book because uh, especially after spending several months um, in under the same roof with them, they are religious uh, recyclers. I mean, even to the extent that neighbors complain that my father goes out and he smashes the cans and, you know, they're, they're just very meticulously organized. And I, I said, I'm not really sure that this is doing much, you know, um, and what I'm hearing you say is actually could be doing some harm to poor countries. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, aluminum and glass recycle really well because they're heavy and, um, but, but plastics are, are light and it's, they're made from a byproduct from oil and gas production already. So you're already um, downcycling. 
And we have these perfectly good solutions for plastic, which is incineration and landfills. The incinerators have, are now burning really hot and clean and the landfills are fine. We capture the methane gas that comes off of the waste. And, and in fact, the waste problem, the plastic waste in the ocean problem, and it is to some extent a problem, is really a consequence of poor countries not having achieved high enough economic development to have their own waste repository system. So, you know, if you care about, it's one of these classic things where it's like, if you care about the natural environment, then you would actually embrace prosperity and economic growth, not resist it. So I talked about the message that I'm going to be bringing as a daughter to my parents. Uh, I would love for you as a father to bring a message to your 15 year old daughter that she is, is welcome here at the Atlas Society. Uh, I, I especially feel for young women, I know it is true for me, that um, being exposed to Ayn Rand, who what, did things that, that no other women did and wrote books in which there were very strong uh, female heroines and role models, um, and, and yes, a few villains uh, was something very unique and helped kind of give me or give myself permission to not necessarily have to conform to social expectations or be in a, a, uh, a subservient role, but to pursue my own happiness. And we would be more than thrilled to send her a shipment uh, if and when she's at that. Thank you. Yeah, it would be great. So, well, thank you again, um, Michael. I, I hope we can still continue continue to think about, I know that our chairman's going to have some ideas. I can hear a draw my life is taking shape in his head as we speak on how to bring your message to others. What are other ways that we can uh, learn about your, your work, uh, is the site or social media that we should be following you on? Yeah, sure. I'd love to stay in touch. And definitely when the new book comes out uh, next year, I'd love to come back and talk with you all. I think it, it's, um, for me, it's a chance to um, offer a kind of new, uh, you know, kind of vision of how we should think about the social contract and what obligations do we owe to each other. And I hope it's appealing both to left and right, to folks in a society and people outside of it that understand that something's, that we, we need a new, we need a new social contract. You know, we need some way to know what is our obligation to each other as taxpayers and citizens. And so that's what the book is going to try to confront. And yeah, people should definitely um, stay in touch. I'm on Twitter at Schellenberger MD, which are my initials. I'm not an MD. And also on uh, Facebook. Um, and yeah, buy the book and send it to your relatives for Christmas, please. We need to, we need to get the book out there more. That's great. And we will be doing uh, what we can to get it out there, including memeing it uh, and then linking all of those memes to this interview. And um, we, we are definitely invited back for the next year as well. We will um, make your upcoming book a subject of the Atlas Society Book Club. And so taxpayers, Perfect. citizens, and all of you out there, uh, donors who are supporting the work, making it possible for us to bring not just the ideas of Ayn Rand and other um, philosophers and, and libertarians to the younger generation, but also new and contemporary thinkers and writers like Michael. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, Jay would not want me to get off without saying uh, all new $5 donations between now and the end of the year are going to be tripled essentially because they're going to be double matched by 
our group. So thank you all. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Hope to maybe see you up in, uh, in the Bay Area. I'd love that. Thanks, Jennifer. Take care. Bye.